good evening. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Philippians chapter 1. And for our study this evening, I, I just want to look at uh, the book of Philippians. We'll give an overview of it and really narrow in on this prayer that Paul is giving for the church in chapter 1 here. Let me just start by reading verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi. And obviously it would apply to us as well. The book of Philippians is one of the most autobiographical of all of Paul's epistles. There are 104 verses and four chapters in the book of Philippians And 70 of those 104 verses are about Paul himself. So we're learning about Paul as we read through this book. A lot of Paul's epistles, he starts with these uh, doctrinal treaties, and then he applies those to our life in the second half of his book. But in this Philippians, we get a good glimpse of Paul himself. And really, if you want to know about Paul, I think it can be summed up in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, where Paul writes this. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. And you know the life of Paul as we read through our New Testament and, and all the suffering and hardships that, he, that he's gone through. And you say, how could one man endure all that? And this is how Philippians chapter 3 tells us. He views all things as lost compared to, to the knowledge of Christ, to know Christ, to obtain to that resurrection from the dead. And really, he lived his life according to that. Paul's chief concern, as should be ours, is to know Christ. This knowledge concerns conformity or identity to Christ. To know Christ is to love Christ, is to follow Christ, is to be like Christ, to identify yourself with him. And it's a process. Paul didn't just wake up one day and decide, hey, I'm going to be like Christ today. No, he grew in this. Notice in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ. 
Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that's really his life's ambition, his life's goal. To know Christ, to be like Christ. And Paul's practice is to press towards Christ's likeness. No matter what was going on, no matter who was coming with him, no matter what difficulties or struggles he encountered, his goal was always to press on towards Christ's likeness. Verses 15 and 16, we read, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, and of course, this perfect is, is the ideal of being mature or complete, not sinless perfection. But as many as are mature and complete have this attitude. And if, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have Obtained. So Paul here now is admonishing his readers. He, he has told you what his life's goal and ambition is to, to know Christ, to follow Christ, to identify with Christ, that he presses towards Christ's likeness, and then he admonishes all of us to join him in that process. To have the same attitude that he has. To press towards Christ's likeness. To be like Jesus Christ. That's his that's his heart for himself, and that's his heart for the readers. Notice verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul is pressing towards Christ's likeness, and he says, Join me in following this example. Say, Don't just stand back and admire Paul's life. Man, Paul was a great Christian. I wish I could do half the things that Paul did. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't just stand back and admire my life. He says, no, brethren, join me in, the following, in following my example. Join me in this. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Look around. There are those who have followed Christ, who have followed Christ who are lo- further along down the path as you. Join them in that pursuit. Follow Christ's likeness. Jump down to chapter 4 and verse 9. He says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's important to know, just aside here, in order for someone to say that, they're an open book. Paul has nothing to hide. He wasn't following Christ on one hand and doing his own thing on the other hand. He was fully committed to Christ. Not perfect, but fully committed to this pursuit. Fully committed to following Christ and knowing Christ. And because he was so much uh, committed to that, he could say to us, that the things that you've learned from him and heard from him and received from him, practice those things. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul exhorts us again to be following and imitating him in his pursuit 
of transformation into the likeness of Christ. Because ultimately, we don't want to be Paul. We want to be Christ. And Paul is a great example of how to live a life and follow Christ. To count all things but loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ. So what is the connection with all these references that Paul is is writing of himself and explaining of himself and also through the book of Philippians, these, these highly Christological passages that we find in the book, like Philippians chapter 2. And we find as we study the book of Philippians that God is seen fit here to use a man, or to let a man, Paul, talk a lot about himself. He's telling you what he's doing, what he's pursuing, what he's thinking, what his attitude is. And God is allowing Paul to do that because Paul's whole ambition in life was to be like Christ. And that's what God would have for each of us as well, to be like Christ. Whatever else we do in life, whatever, whatever else we pursue, whatever else we're involved in, it all comes down to one thing, be like Christ. Do what Christ does. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2. Explains for us. So God has seen fit to let Paul be the example for us. So if you listen to Paul, if you observe the way he thinks about things, you you note the choices that he makes, and then you imitate that, you will be like Christ also. Paul's life was one of a committed follower of Christ. That is why Paul uses that is why God uses Paul here, I believe, to exhort people like us to follow his example. If God is going to allow someone to say, Follow me as I am following Christ, who better than Paul? Who by his sacrifice and by his service exemplified what a Christian should be and do. This book is also filled with references to joy. A, a Christ-like model of joyful maturity. As, the, as we saw this morning, the Christian life should be one filled with joy as we pursue uh, the promised hope that God has for us. So turn back, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. And again, I said this, this epistle begins with a prayer that Paul has for the church. And we read verses 9 through 11, but really the prayer starts in verse 3. And let me read for you verses 3 through 8 to get the whole uh, context of the prayer. So Paul begins this way in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation of the gospel from the first day until now, for I am, con- I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both of my both in my imprisonment and in my defense and in my confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
So Paul here has an explanation of why he can make his request with joy. He's thinking of the Philippians church. He's writing to the Philippians church. He's praying for the Philippians church. And he's doing so with joy because of their participation in the gospel. Because of the reports that Paul has heard that when I left you, you continued the work. You continued to try to follow Jesus Christ. You continued to be like Christ and do the things that he has called you to do. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's an uh, encouragement, hopefully, for us. Or it's an, uh, maybe you're being admonished in some ways to question, can that be said of us? Can that be said of Ambassador Baptist Church as we go away from this place? Can I pray for you with all joy, knowing that your participation in the gospel from the first day to now is continuing? That you're walking in the faith, that you are, you are bold in your proclamation, that you are confirming the gospel and you are partakers of grace. I mean, that's, that's the goal. That's the hope. And that's what brings joy. That brings us back to verses 9 through 11. And here's Paul's request. Paul begins with the church's love. He says again, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. And it's not just a generic love. He says it's a real love in real knowledge and discernment. So you have knowledge. You're exercising discernment. And from that stems this love, true Christian love that results in sacrificial service for others and those around you. So Paul is expressing his request, and he begins with the church's love. He says, I want it to abound. I want it to continue. I want it to increase as you follow Christ. You see, if we were there and if we could hear Paul pray this prayer, this is what we would hear him pray about. See, Timothy's here. Timothy's here while Paul is writing the letter. Timothy is hearing Paul pray this prayer as he's writing to the Philippians. And Paul is writing this letter while he's imprisoned in Rome. Timothy is there. And Paul's concern while he's in prison is not about himself. Right? We think about the circumstances that, that surround Paul here. He's writing to Philippians, and all he's doing is talking about them and how much joy they're bringing him. If we were in that situation, we might be praying something differently, right? Like, free me from this imprisonment. But we don't see Paul doing that. And we'll see why later on in chapter 1. But Paul's concern is with the church. Paul's prayer is preoccupied with, first, with the church's love. And as you look through the book of Philippians, the church's love manifests itself in three ways. First of all, it's the church's love for God. Paul is, is, t- takes joy and encouragement to know that the church at Philippi continues in their love for God. They know the truth. They have this knowledge. They, they've exercised discernment. And they have a love for God. Paul also writes about their love for him. It is the church at Philippi that sacrificially gives to Paul, that sends gifts to Paul, that ministers to Paul even while he's in prison. So Paul is thankful, takes joy in the church's love for him. And thirdly, Paul takes joy in the church's love for each other. 
the church of Philippi is marked by their love for one another, and that love is seen in their sacrificial service for each other and to, <coughs> and to each other. Excuse me. So we can all recognize the need of any church to continually grow in this manner. Remember, Paul is saying he wants their love to abound, to continue, to increase. And no matter how loving of a church we are, how loving of a person we are, that can obviously increase. That could change. We can continually uh, look to grow in that area. You see, when people first come to a church, they often come looking for something for themselves. I'm looking for a church. I'm going to visit these three churches, and I'm going to see what they have to offer for me and for my family, what opportunities I will have. What, what programs they offer, what's the preaching like, what's the singing like. And when we first come to a church, we're, we're evaluating it based on what that church can do for me. I mean, if we're honest, that's what we're doing. We're looking for a church that suits our needs. Now, a lot of you have been here for a long time, so you don't know what else is out there, and that's a good thing. But this is a good church. And you've come here, and initially you may have been looking for what's in it for me. What do they have to offer me? But there has to come a time when there's a transition in your thinking, in your attitude, in your mindset. And it has to be made that a person, if, if that person is to bond with the assembly that they're seeking to join, the transition from thinking about what am I receiving, what's here at this church for me, to what can I give? What can I do for this church? What am I giving? What am I contributing? Where am I serving? And that really ought to be the mindset of everyone here. The mature believer, the mature believers at Ambassador Baptist Church are here to serve others. What can I do for you? How can I use the gifts and abilities that God has given me to serve this group of people in Royal Oak, Michigan? That's love. So when Paul's talking about the church's love for God, the church's love for him, and the church's love for each other, that's what he's talking about. How are you sacrificially serving others around you, particularly in this body of believers? So Paul, again, back to, the, back to Philippians chapter 1, Paul's prayer concerns a love that abounds more and more in real knowledge and all discernment and practical wisdom. And as we saw, love, love always wants to extend itself for others. Love seeks other people's good. It looks for ways to do things for the objects that it loves. So if I am to love this church, I'm going to seek to do things to demonstrate that love, to serve you, to help you, to use whatever gifts God has given me for your good. Mature love expresses that warm affection for one another by choosing the wise things for those objects, what's best for them. Which means love can be confrontational. If you see a brother in sin, for example, love does not ignore that. 
Love does not avoid that. Love sees that, confronts that, and tries to help that, bring that to repentance. And that's really uh, the benefit of being in a body like this. You know, you could go to a church with a thousand people in it and not know 990 of them. Or you can come to a church of 40 to 50 people and get to know every single one of them personally, intimately, know what they're struggling with, what they're dealing with, how to pray for them, and where you can help them. And that ought to be your mindset. Because that's what we should be doing as a congregation, as a body of believers. That is a mature love. And it's a love that stems from real knowledge, verse 9 says. Knowledge is a perception or, or a possession of facts. Combine that with discernment. So I I know what's going on, I'm discerning through that, and I'm acting in love, because love always acts. Love is an action. Many years ago, uh, 2008, 2009, when we we first started here at Ambassador, we were doing a series through 1 Corinthians 13, and we saw that love was action. I mean, verb after verb after verb after verb describes what love is. Love is not passive. Love is active. Love seeks to minister, to serve, to help. And a love that abounds more and more, as, as Paul says here in Philippians chapter 1, in the possession of the facts with knowledge and a perception of discernment. How things work together for good. How can I help to work things together for good? How can I come alongside one another and forward the work of Christ in this place? An inward look that results in an outward service. Why do we do this? Look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians, or Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. So that, or because, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So why do we love each other in this way? So that out of the whole realm of possibilities, you may approve the things that are excellent. There are a number of things we can engage ourselves in this week. There are a number of things we can engage ourselves in this year. There are a number of things we can engage ourselves in in our lifetime. But out of the whole realm of possibilities... We want to approve the things that are excellent. That's our goal. That's our hope. That's what we strive for. So the mature prayer is a prayer concerning their love and a desire that their love abound in this sense, that it be approved, verse 10 says, that it be approved. That refers to testing things to show that they're genuine. How do I know that my love is real? Because when things get difficult, I don't run away. I bear down and I get more involved. It's a genuine love. It's an approved love. And we need wisdom for this. Love is is the foundation of it all. Administering to people selflessly and giving to them in love, governed by knowledge and discernment. What is best? What is the best way for me to approach whatever situation pops up in this assembly. So it is a giving 
that is wise and makes the excellent choice for the good of others. That's really the key point. It's for the good of others. Again, it's not an inward focus. Hey, if I do this, I might get this recognition. Or if I do this for them, they might do something for me. It's a completely selfless thought that I'm simply going to do good for others and help them in their growth and help them along this journey of Christ-likeness. So that like Paul, we can have an attitude that everything else doesn't matter. I want to be like Christ. I want to follow Christ. And I want to take you with me. Notice verses uh, 10 and 11 again. He says, So that you may, be, you, you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So what's at stake here? Why, why do, do we want to be this type of church, a, a loving church, a church like the church at Philippi, ministering and serving the needs of others? Because choices have to do with what the ministry and people become. It says that you may be, this is what he wants, that you may be, what is at stake is whether or not people are sincere. Are we sincere? There's no hidden defect in them. Something is really what it appears to be. It's not a counterfeit. And again, that's why Paul could stand up here and say, look, uh, have this mind in you which, which, which I have. Be, think about it the way I'm thinking about it. Do the things that I'm doing. He could say that because he was sincere. He was pursuing these things wholeheartedly. He was no counterfeit. What maintains our blamelessness? It's the kind of love that makes excellent choices. And only time will tell. But as, as we we're sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, it says, so we're doing this till the end, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love that makes excellent choices. That the ministry may be sincere and blameless without offense. And that there may be a harvest of righteousness to the glory of God. You see, if we respond in this way, if we obey these truths, there will be a harvest of righteousness that results in, the end of verse 11, the glory and praise of God which obviously is our purpose in all things as believers. Righteousness is, is simply, uh, verse 11 says that the fruit of righteousness, righteousness is meeting my obligation before the Lord. What has God told me to do? Has God told me to use my gifts in service of the church? Yes or no? Yes. Righteousness is meeting my obligation before the Lord. And both the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi exemplify that. They were doing what they had been called to do. They were making mature choices. Well, what does a mature choice look like? Look at uh, chapter 1 down in verse 21. Paul has a decision to make here. Verses 21 through 24. 
here's what he said. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for the progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So think of this. Paul has been beaten. He has been persecuted. He has been imprisoned. And he's standing there and he says, you know what, I'm having a difficulty because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Quite frankly, if I were to die, it would be far better because I would be with Christ. But I know that for me to continue to live is more beneficial for you. So what's he doing? He's thinking about their good, not his own. For him, to die is gain. He gets to be with Christ. No more beatings, no more persecutions, no more suffering. Sounds good. But it was more necessary for him to remain and to help the church grow. To, to be fruitful, to, 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 to help them. So he's so convinced of that that he knows that because that is beneficial for them, and this is what God wants me to do, that I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith. And he says at the end of verse 26 that it will all abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. His confidence was that he wasn't going to die. And so, part of him wanted to because it was better for him. But the reality was he knew that God had a plan for him and was going to use him. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, more than that, again, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value and knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I am suffered the loss of all things and come from his rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That is a mature example. Look, there are things that I can do that are better for me, but I'm going to lay all that aside and pursue your good. I'm going to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And that I may serve as an example for you to follow. So we pursue what we, what, what, what we are really fascinated with. And Paul was fascinated with knowing Christ and becoming like him. And leaving an example for others to follow. This was a church in Philippi that out of their love for Paul made a decision that evidently no other church that Paul had founded had made. So Paul sets them forth as an example by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Paul says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek a gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So here's a church at Philippi that practiced what they preached. 
They loved God. They wanted to serve others. And they continually gave to that mission. So we see this principle. Loving enough to choose wisely, to choose sacrificially the excellent things. The things of God. The things that bring about Christ-likeness. And what it does in the end is make us so sincere that you can hold up, you could hold us up to a light, let anyone know about your fears, and we would appear righteous. And we would be counted as blameless and ultimately resound to the glory and praise of God. That's the reason Paul is praying this prayer. That when we're examined, when we're evaluated, we are approved. And my hope this evening as we look at this prayer of Paul is that this would be a prayer that we have for one another. In other words, that we would pray for one another in this way. Pray for each other's needs. Pray for each other's walk in Christ. Pray for the church. That you would be a church that abounds in love more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for a church like this one that you've raised up here in Royal Oak. This assembly of believers who have come together to love one another, to serve one another, to love you and to serve you. And ultimately, Lord, to serve this community as a light in a dark place. Lord, we pray as people examine this church and examine its members that they would see Christ followers. And that that would be such an attraction to them that you may draw people to yourself and to this place to join in the worship and praise of your name. And we pray this for your glory.